0: Hello, Gary. This is Jonathan ah. again.
1: <laughs> okay, my question now is, do you have some kind of a voice-level indicator on your recording device?
0: I have just checked it, yes. I think I know what must have happened, but um, mm. it's a little bit you know, unfortunate because I thought that we, ha- we did a really nice job uh, <laughs> on the first take on this podcast. I, w- when we hung up, I, I thought, that, that was good, that was interesting. I I had Mm -hmm. an enjoyable, interesting conversation, and now here we are having to sort of pricey it again, which is kind of unfortunate. I mean, it won't be the same thing anyway, I'm sure, but I I, I do apologize to you for it.
1: Uh, Well, this is one of the things I've, a couple of times I've done uh, Locus interviews on my own, which is usually a couple of people there. and. And one of the things that Liza told me or Amelia or somebody very early on is have two recording devices. There's always yeah. a micro cassette recorder and an MP3 recorder. Yeah. And I understand why now.
2: <laughs> well, yes. But I
1: <laughs> what I was suggesting when we were emailing back and forth uh, after the last conversation was that no, we can't we can't go back to the beginning of that. Oh. But we're you know, we were, we were at a good point at the end.
0: I think we um, were. Well, we were look- starting a campaign to rediscover Joanna Russ, which oh, is, we will. I'm going to price it at you know, the beginning since we're starting again, and, and you know, right. nobody out there who's listening really knows uh, what we talked about. I just want to start off by saying uh, a couple of people, when they reported the first podcast we did together, referred to it as me interviewing you. And really, in truth, this is the official podcast. It's, it's sort of like, I think it's going to be you and I talking every week or so, and then occasionally bringing you know, other people we know into a chat with. So it's really yeah, going to not- be a joint thing.
1: It's not an interview, absolutely. No. Um, we had this um, uh, distinction, which at, uh, at, at, at World Town in Montreal, we had a, on the pro, one of the things on the program was a conversation between myself and Neil Gaiman. And, yeah. Uh, and Neil had to preface that by saying, no, I'll be interviewed later today. We're just going to talk about what we always talk about. Yeah, yeah. And it mightily puzzled some of the people for the first 15 <laughs> minutes, but eventually eventually, I think it worked out well. Uh, so yeah, let's consider these conversations not yeah. at all interviews.
0: An and, and also since we're in the sort of clarification and disclaimer phase of the event, I guess I'll just summarize by saying a few people did refer to the previous podcast as a Locus-related podcast and one person actually asked what, what, you know, was it an official Locus podcast? And no, what you really have here I think are two friends who are interested in science fiction who happen to work for Locus. Locus mm-hmm. is a common experience but this is not an official Locus podcast though, you know, look we encourage you to pay attention to Locus and subscribe and all those good things.
1: Absolutely. We, um, uh, we have that in common, and I hope Locus enjoys the podcast, but nothing that I say, and for that matter, nothing that I've ever said in my reviews I thought was an official Locus position. Yeah. I, I distrust official positions of any kind.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I guess we'll start by saying we were discussing at some length, I think, the strange case of Joanna Russ. And it's probably, yes. probably worth sort of going back to that and starting from there.
1: Well, we actually uh, – I, I was thinking about the conversation after we were finished because it was interesting. We started talking about canon formation, and about the, mm. the podcast that you would send out on your own, and that led us to Joanna Russ, yeah. which is going to make no sense to anybody listening at this point because, of course, Joanna Russ is in the canon. Everybody knows Joanna Russ is in the canon. But which canon is she in? Uh, if you talk about women science fiction writers, yes, if you talk about feminist science fiction writers, if you talk about science fiction in the 70s. The problem, I think, with putting people in specific, narrowly defined canons is that, first of all, there are people who, who may not be interested in that canon as such, who may not read and You yeah. and I were both saying she's an extremely witty writer. She yes. may have been the funniest science fiction writer of yeah. the 70s. Yeah. Very angry, very bitter, very powerful, all that is there. But she was an extraordinarily witty writer. Uh, both in fiction and
0: non-fiction. Well, I I encountered her first, uh, actually, through the Alex stories. Uh, I picked up a copy of The Adventures of Alex. I think the women's press Mm -hmm. reprinted it back in the 80s and found it tremendously entertaining and then picked up a copy of The Zanzibar Cat. So I actually kind Mm -hmm. of, I I sort of like, I read around her other fiction before I got to the stuff that was most centrally described as feminist science fiction, I think.
1: The canonical stuff. And I think maybe the first thing of hers I read was The Female Man. So when I... My, my reaction was, was the opposite. I, I, I probably enjoyed the female man maybe more than I should have being a man, but I thought <laughs> she was saying things nobody had said before. Yeah. And later I discovered The Adventures of Alex,
2: yeah. and I had read her reviews
1: in fantasy and science fiction. At that point I thought, this is somebody who's steeped in science fiction,
2: yeah. somebody yeah.
1: who knows the field inside and out, somebody who, uh, as, as The Adventures of Alex make clear, you know, knew the work of Fritz Leiber, and Fritz Leiber knew her work, and they put characters in each other's stories.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think that this is the great thing about the, the science fiction field. I mean, you were saying this in the the podcast we did last week, where we were talking about you know fiction that sees through the genre to you know, to other fiction kind of a thing, mm-hmm. and why we find it the most interesting kind of fiction to re- to read in the field because. You you want to see that kind of dialogue, and what I like to see, what what I find heartening now, given the last couple of years of what I've been doing, is seeing things where, I mean, I don't think people discuss things like the link between someone who's seen as a hardcore feminist science fiction writer like Joanna Ross. They don't see the author of The Female Man as being in dialogue with the author of Swords and Deviltry, and yet she absolutely completely was. Yes,
1: she was. And
0: she was aware of it, and he was aware
1: of it. And he was... Um, and, and, and one of the things that happens when you read interesting authors like this in conjunction with one another is you realize that Leiber was an astonishingly sophisticated writer and very aware of what was going on with him uh, right up until his death, really. Yeah. Um, and, and, and and looking at him in the context of Joanna Ross gives you a new reading of Fritz Leiber just as looking at Fritz Leiber in the context of The Adventures yeah. of Alice gives yeah. you a broadened reading of
0: Joanna Ross. Well, I guess this also touches on something that, that I've thought a few times of late, and that is that, you know, when I talk to friends of mine who are particularly interested in feminist science fiction, uh, I feel like they are, for some very good reasons, I guess, less interested in reading the rest of the field. But what it does is it—they do lose a certain context when when you when know, mm. so they they read feminist science fiction uh, in isolation. I mean, I guess what they what some of them, not all of them, say, I guess, is they're interested in feminism and science feminist science fiction is a subset of feminism rather than the way Mm. I tend to read, which is I read science fiction, and feminist science fiction is a subset of science fiction.
1: In academia, I have friends from both areas, friends who began with feminism, and I have a friend, as a matter of fact, uh, who I've I've been out of contact with for 30 years. She's now president of the Modern Language Association, Mm -hmm. uh, and and a very important feminist scholar at the University of Michigan, and she called me a couple of years after, and and, uh, we lost lost touch. We used to work in the same office, and was asking me about Ursula Le Guin. Yep. And she clearly wanted to know, as a feminist historian, as a serious person who's into feminism, um, as, as a scholarly discipline, what few science fiction books she needed to read. Yeah. And that was an interesting problem, because, yes, I can say, well, of course you should read Le Guin, and you should read Joanna Russ, and you should read Susan McKee Charnas, but these people have read other people. Yeah. Uh, and you're not going to apprehend any... Uh, most of the science fiction writers I know, uh, both historically and personally, uh, grew up reading a lot of this stuff and are reacting to it. It's Not all they're reacting
0: to, No, obviously. no, no. Uh,
1: but, but, but you can't, you yeah. can't really understand them without understanding some of the science fiction context in which they lived.
0: But also, I wonder, can you understand fully, uh, you know, your Joanna Russ and your Ursula Le Guin and whoever else writing feminist science fiction if you don't, to some degree, also understand um, C.J. Cherry and Lois Bujold and Connie Willis and the other women who are writing in the field as well? Because just mm-hmm. because they, they don't. Overtly necessarily tackle feminist issues. You know, it's got to be intrinsic to what they do anyway. I would have thought.
1: I think that most of them feel that way. I think that they feel that that's, that they don't want to be defined in those terms. No, uh, no, which is which is reasonable for any writer. I think uh, very few writers like to be pigeonholed uh, in, in any way at all.
0: Yeah, and
1: I, th- I guess th- I th- guess mentioned.
0: Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna no. say I guess I look at the difference between the Sherry Tepper who writes Grass and the Sherry Tepper who writes The Gate to Women's Country. You mm. know. One's writing feminist science fiction and the other's writing science fiction that has that is of interest to feminists.
1: Um that's an interesting distinction, and I think there's some of that going on. I can see uh, you could almost divide Susie Chanis' stories into both of those areas to some
2: mm. extent. There's yeah. a feminist
1: sensibility that informs anything they write. Yeah. It's not necessarily overt in everything they write. And one of the other interesting things, when you look at go back to the, the the prehistory of feminist science fiction, which to some extent almost has to be the prehistory of of Russell and When you yeah. go back and look at Andre Norton or Lee Brackett or Catherine Moore, uh, very few of whom uh, were in a position to write what they thought was feminist fiction. They they would yeah. do all sorts of interesting things. I mean, Lee Brackett is, is to me a very interesting writer.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, uh, but on the other hand, I, I've, I I never met Lee Brackett. One of the things I you know, I'm, I'm, even I'm too young for that, I suppose. <laughs> I did talk to Andre Norton, who did not like being called a feminist. Yeah, uh, yeah. She was, she was not happy with that at all because she she thought she was writing boys' books. And then yeah. eventually became girls' books. And she she changed her fiction. She became more of a feminist writer, I think, than she was even aware of by the end yeah. of her career. Yeah. Uh, but she never intended to do that. She never saw herself that way.
0: Well, yes, and I, I wonder whether, oh, uh, a Zimmer Bradley did, you know. I think she did.
1: I think yeah. she shifted. Absolutely. Yeah. I think Anne McCaffrey may
0: have, to some extent, and and this the same for uh, you know, a Connie Willis as well. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I don't know that Connie would describe herself as a feminist science fiction writer, but I think that there is a a strain in there. You know, now I would also say that this all took you know, cu- you know, sort of cu- culminated in our saying that we really you know, sort of cu- we wanted to see more of Russ's fiction reprinted because you know one of the great sad stories of the last. Year or two, I think, was when we heard that, I think it was Wesleyan, had unfortunately cancelled its plans to publish the collected stories of Joanna Russ, mm-hmm. which means that we're in the odd situation where a nonfiction is in, in print in a, an accessible and uh, very valuable volume. And, of course, there's Farah Mendelssohn's terrific nonfiction book, which is uh, up for the Hugo this year, that you've got an essay in, and that's available. And also, for for those of you listening, if you were to go and buy a Hugo membership, well, a Worldcon membership, so you can vote in the Hugos, you can download a free copy of On Joanna Russ and read it. But you can't, I don't think there's a single book book of fiction available, certainly short fiction, um, in print.
1: I I doubt if there is, and that's one of the odd things when we were talking about canon's, yeah. Of, of Russ is in everybody's canon, and Russ is not. It's much easier, as you say, to read about Russ than it is to read Russ these days.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, and uh, The Adventures of Alex, I think, was reprinted. within in the Greg Press series. Uh,
2: yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, we Are About To was reprinted in that. That's 20 some, maybe 30 years ago now.
0: It would be 30 years uh, ago.
1: Yeah, so it, it, it rather astonishes me that with all the uh, attention which is paid to her, and I've talked to young uh... readers young women readers at wisconsin who all uh, know the name but we yeah. try to find out what they've read um, maybe a few of them have read the female man Yeah, a lot of them have read uh, a couple of the canonical short stories but, but the 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 broad sense of, of of what she was as a writer is, is is not there and that's sad i mean i think her uh, collected stories absolutely are one of the uh... one of the obscenities of, of publishing these days is that that book is not out
0: and you know It's almost as though they're looking. We're we're looking for the hook to come along that will allow it to happen, because Mm -hmm. you know, look at say Tiptree. You know, uh, some years back, uh, Jim Turner at Arkham House edited a collection of her short fiction, uh, *The Smoke Grows Up Forever*, Mm -hmm. and had John Clute write an intro for it. And And that sort of bubbled along a little bit, but then when Julie Phillips did the biography then that book really sort of swung in. And it kind of like, I think, took her name to a, another level and got it really cemented that her work would stay accessible and I don't think we will now lose James Tiptree at all. Someone no. like Joanna Rutt, I mean, uh, if you look at, say, I mean, Jack Vance we talk, uh, had the uh, VIE come along, you know, the, the, the fan group who came along and scanned all his work and got it sort of thing, and there were writers coming along who were influenced. That sort of set him so that he was, not I don't think he will now, for at least a generation or two, Risk being forgotten as a writer, but Mm -hmm. but someone like Joanna Russ, you know, there needs to be that something else. I mean, it would have been nice if Farah's book, it would be nice if the non-fiction book had uh, done that for her, but it hasn't yet, and I'm concerned, you know,
1: that well, a non-fiction book from the University Press is not going to do what Julie Phillips' biography did, and what Julie Phillips' biography did was to bring uh, Alice Sheldon to the attention of a much wider community. Yeah. Uh, and partly she had the advantage of a terrific life. I mean, that's just the you know, mm. uh, – I've talked to any number of people who read that book who had never heard of James Tiptree before yeah. and were utterly fascinated. There are not very many people who have wives like
0: that. No, I can name okay. two or three in the field. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, her, um, Cord- you know, Paul Linebarger, Cordwanna Cord- Cord- Smith. Smith yeah, and, and funnily enough, up to a point, up until he got dull and settled down, even our own Charles had a fairly interesting life when you look at it. Mm-hmm. You know, all this sort of stuff to do with, you know, nuclear weapons and stuff was all a bit odd. But, you know, um, one thing I wonder, uh, and it sort of was threaded into our conversation, is writing canonical work as much as a a, a straight jacket and a death sentence as it is a liberation, you know? Uh, Mm -hmm. Is there the chance that you get, you know, sort of, uh, what set in, in concrete, and nobody sees your work as a living thing anymore because it's canonical, and so they don't read it.
1: Well, it becomes canonical and it becomes historical as well because I have talked, again, to younger readers who see uh, the female man as an artifact of the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it can be read that way, uh, but, it, but to some extent that's reading only one dimension of it. And my problem with reading... It, this is a problem with reading science fiction through any particular lens. Yeah. Whether it's a science fictional lens or a feminist lens or a Marxist lens, yeah. is that any writer who's, who's a very interesting writer is going to have more things going on in their fiction than you expect and the one thing I say to everybody and i I, I do and I, I have reread the female and I reread a lot of Russ when I was writing that essay yeah. uh, for the wesleyan volume is that it's never quite what you expect uh, the, you, know, you look at the novella like souls and it's not what you think it's going to be even no. the female man is not what you think people I think hesitate to read a book because they they figure okay this is a uh, very serious classic, and yep. there are laugh out loud parts of that novel which uh, which people have forgotten about. Yeah. In, well, in addition to which, the novel is very sophisticated in its manipulation of science fiction tropes.
0: Yes. I, I, I guess this is something which I I have to sort of come to terms with as well as a middle aged white man, right? With my mm-hmm. own with my own personal background, it's something that you know bubbled along in the background when I was doing Eclipse Two and Eclipse Three, as you know. And that is that, to some degree, I always used to view science fi- well, feminist science fiction as, I don't know, something that was good for you that you did reluctantly. It was kind of like eating bran or something. And some friends of mine were um, offended when I described it that way because they thought that was a terrible way to view work by women. And it wasn't that it was work by women that I, I, I felt that way about. It was when you know, label something as feminist science fiction, it sounds worthy, it sounds you know, good for you in some way. And also, I guess, if you are... A white middle-aged man, somebody who probably is going to be, you know, yelled at a bit, and none of us particularly Mm -hmm. like being yelled at. And I think that was something which, when I became aware of feminist science fiction, made me wary. It made me very wary of Helen Merrick's book, uh, which is up. Mm -hmm. You know, her uh, was it the Secret Feminist Cabal? I think it's called something like that. It's a very good book. It's an awesome book. I, I was surprised at how generous it was. I guess, you know, I was ready to be to be yelled at, and yet I found myself enjoying the book immensely. And so, you know, that sort of changes my perspective. But but what I find interesting as well is that when I go back to what I consider my own naive years as a reader, which are up to before about, I was about 24, 25, because I Mm -hmm. only really began to think about the field as existing, as a field, as a, you know, rather than just neat stuff to read when I was about 18 or 20, was that I'd read Joanna Russ, and Mm -hmm. I'd read Sherry Tepper, and I'd read Ursula Le Guin, but I'd never thought of them as something that was feminist. They were great books for some reason, you know, things that I'd responded to and whatever. I'd read Mm -hmm. Marins Zimmer Bradley exhaustively, whatever else. Uh, So it's funny how the context that you cast the text in when you present it to somebody else really changes how they react to it.
1: I think I saw it in both contexts because of being in a university, and I did have feminist scholars who were friends. About the time, I'm not sure of the dates on this, but it seems to me that about the time the female man was out, there was a huge enormous bestseller in the states called the women's room by Marilyn french Mm -hmm. which was uh, a very angry it was uh, the the, the topic of of hundreds of discussion groups among women it was it was the first kind of feminist mass market bestseller Mm -hmm. uh that reached an audience and i I read it and i I, I talked with my friends about it and i told my friends they should read the female man because in a third of the length it does everything that novel does only with with greater wet and greater style and the, and Mm -hmm. the Marilyn french novel is not a bad novel yeah. it's simply to me it's not as good a novel as, as, as the Joanna Russ novel. One of the things that, that occurred to me at that time was uh, in an area that has uh, uh, that has political concerns like feminism, science fiction could do things that even the most ambitious mainstream fiction couldn't do. Yeah, And I still don't know if I've read a feminist novel that is as good a novel as, as The Female Man. I, I, I don't read all the feminist novels that come out. I've read some of them, and I haven't kept up with it, but but the multiple dimensions that went into somebody like Russ or Le Guin for that matter uh, yeah. are just uh, uh, astonishing because there's there's so much stuff in them uh, That's right. so uh, yeah and, and uh, even uh, I remember uh, and I've gotten in trouble occasionally for writing reviews in which I said something along the lines of um, you don't want if, if you label something as feminist you may keep some people from reading it yeah Um and there uh, and, and there's almost always uh, more than that one dimension to a to a good novel. Well, there is. Um, I, I think of, I think of Susie Charnis's, uh series that began with The Walk to the End of the World, yep. which was extremely sophisticated and became more sophisticated as it went along, and to some extent uh, much more complex in its treatment of, of, of gender relationships by the time the fourth volume. And unfortunately, the fourth volume came out years and years after the
2: yeah.
1: uh, the first one. But uh, you know, as 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 a series of novels, it has a lot more to say than um, uh, it's a series of novels that men ought to be reading. Yeah. And my my concern was it wasn't that novel I was reviewing was another. My concern was if you if 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 you label and market a book in a certain way, uh, you're limiting a market. Uh, You're limiting the possible readership, and possibly you're limiting some of the readers that should be reading the book.
0: Well, I find that interesting as well because I often hear a couple of my. friends talking about books in terms of you know that book's not for me I'm not the intended audience for it and a lot of this is I think uh, colored by packaging by reviews by whatever it might be and yet what I often find is that uh, there are things which are which by that measure I would not like which I enjoy a great deal and in fact one of the things I find perplexing is there are several cases I can think of where I've read something in manuscript loved it, mm-hmm. and yet every single edition of the book that when it's published I've ever seen, I wouldn't go near, you know, be- be- because it's plainly not intended for me.
1: Um, and part of that, uh, to defend the marketing people, oh, sure, suppose, sure uh, is-, is-, is that, you know, people like you and I are not going to make a bestseller.
0: Well, no, no. And also, I mean, you don't need really to market an Al Reynolds novel to me, for example, because I'm going to buy an Al Reynolds novel anyway. And so I understand where you want to cover your main market and then expand a little bit to something else but and you know but, and nor am I ever going to pick up a romancy looking book because they just don't interest me and all that sort of thing. but um, I, I just found, I also find the, the mindset fascinating that you would think in terms of um, that's marketed in such a way that it's not for me you know. Um, and, and how that then colors your, your, what, what work you're exposed to and what you think about work before you've ever read it. You know?
1: I think this is one of the reasons why we read reviews, why we pay attention to blogs, why we try to find out what's actually going on out there because uh, increasingly uh, – and again, I, I, I almost feel defensive about marketing people. They have to find a niche to market oh,
2: yeah. these things. No, 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 this, this is, yeah. I mean,
1: last week, uh, last time we talked, we were talking about this Charlie Houston novel, which I don't think either yeah. one of us would have picked up until no. uh, Paul Whitcover. Uh, did a review and said it's a really good science fiction novel. Yeah. And um, I I've read his novels and I thought they're pretty good. But no, I I thought okay, I thought I knew what Charlie Houston was. Maybe yes. I don't. Maybe I'm going to read this one now.
0: Well, it still remains the great you know problem for people like you and I. You know, you have that little window where someone comes along, and you can sort of you're open to them. And you're what you're really looking to if, to do, even if, if you're not aware of it, is assess them and get them into a, a slot in your mind. And w- whether it's, you know, cutting-edge SF writer I need to sort of pay attention to or best-selling paranormal romance writer who I'm not that interested in. And, and I think we have to, yeah, uh,
1: we have to consciously work against that because mm. any writer, uh, by definition, who's interesting is going to be uh, full of surprises. We we, we mentioned uh, uh, Al Reynolds' The Terminal World, for example. Yeah, yeah, Which is not like other Al Reynolds novels at all. No. Um, and it seems to, uh, you know, Point back toward all kinds of sort of early fantasy novels, all sorts of things. It's clearly something you wanted to write. but it's clearly something which is not written for, quote, the Al Reynolds market. Yeah. Um, and I was uh, uh, in. I was emailing back and forth with Mary Rickard about uh, uh, the question. I I I'd, I'd written a letter of recommendation for her in which I said she was a writer who constantly reinvents herself, and she, yeah. you know, said I thought that too, but I didn't know that anybody else noticed it. Well. <laughs> The point I was making to her was that, if, you know, uh, almost warning her as a writer, being in my avuncular mode, that if, if, if you get to the point where everybody knows what a Mary Rickard story is like, you're in trouble. You know? Yeah. And that's what I, uh, that's what fascinates me about about the most inventive writers. To, uh, yeah. I wouldn't name the most inventive writers, but Mary Rickard is one of them. Kelly Link is one of them. Sure, Jesse sure. Ford is one of them. Uh, you had a sword and sorcery story by Jeffrey Ford in one of your anthologies. Yes. And... That delights me. I mean it may not be what I expect from Jeffrey Ford, but what I expect from Jeffrey Ford is something unexpected from Jeffrey Ford. Yes. That's what I like about his
0: fiction. Yes, exactly. I agree completely. I mean I was just thinking while you were saying that that uh, it's funny how you you become familiar. It's like I was thinking if you go back five or six years, if somebody got a short story from from Peter Beagle to put in a book – You would be Mm -hmm. going, oh my gosh, that's the most extraordinary thing. I really have to buy that because Peter Beagle's terrific. Now he's evolved, I think, in fact amazingly for a man of what, 70 or 71, I think has matured in the last 10 years into a far better short story writer than he'd ever been before. And now one of the best in the field. But I don't think it's as much of a surprise anymore to see a Peter Beagle story in anything. You'll see six or eight stories in a year, and so there is that Mm -hmm. element where you kind of go, oh okay, that's that's another Peter Beagle story. And it's only the fact that he keeps them the actual stories themselves fresh, you know, that he's able to sort of write such an array of stuff that, that makes it interesting and keeps it's it interesting. interesting. It's interesting that
1: Peter Beagle at his age is becoming a lot like Jeffrey Ford because both mm. of them have the series of stories in which you can say, Ah, here's an autobiographical story, here's a memoir of his childhood in Brooklyn, here's a memoir of Jeffrey Ford teaching in a community college. And as soon as you think, okay, they're doing autobiographical stuff, they'll do something completely different. Yes. And, yes. and that's, that's what's completely delightful from writers like that. Mm. And, uh, the, the fact that, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know if we should probably even try to think of people. As I say, if you can, if you can identify a story, if, if, if it got to the point where we knew, uh, looking at a blind manuscript, that this is a Kelly Link story, because it's all the other Kelly Link stories, yeah. Kelly would be very upset by
0: that, and she should be. It hasn't no, gotten yeah. to that point. No, no, not at all. And I hope it won't. No, I I don't think so. So tell me, I mean, uh, as we bop around, sort of some of the old topics we'd covered. um, We are in the thick of the awards season right now. I mean, it's going to be the the -hmm. Nebula Awards are presented within the next twenty four hours from the moment we're talking. Uh, Hugo voting goes through to July thirty first. World Fantasy Award voting uh, closes at the end of June, I think. The Locus Awards are set and will be presented in late June. So you know. How important do you think the awards are?
1: There are probably a couple of ways of answering that. I mean it's clear that uh, – first of all, it, it, it's an enormous vote of confidence for the for the authors. I mean authors mm. like, to I, oh, yeah. like to get awards. I like to get awards. I like to get awards. Getting an award is fine. Yeah. The other part of me thinks we get more awards in this field than any other field I sure. can think of.
2: We're uh, mad. Yeah. Uh,
1: we're just award-mad, and we're, 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 we're canon-mad, and we're list-mad, and that sort of thing. And I'm not sure that in the long run it's going to save anybody's career. It'll, it'll give a bump in sales for the next book. It's something you can put on every book. The two things you love to have on blurbs are national bestseller yep. and, uh, and, and a Hugo Award-winning, Nebula Award-winning, and that sort of thing. Yep. Uh, does, it, does, it, does it necessarily put books into what we were calling the canon? I doubt that.
0: Um, I think does it cast, a them, that does it cast them? Does it cast them in that light, though? I mean, uh, setting aside anything to do with publishing and marketing and sales for a second, mm-hmm. uh, and just looking at it as a dialogue of the field and everything else. If you're, uh, say, Ch- well, trying to be able with the city in the city, you know, Clark, mm-hmm. Winner nebula nominee hugo nominee Locus award nominee all that kind of thing you're that's book that book at least is being singled out in its year as a book that may well go into the canon and a book that in 2009 10 we thought was very important mm-hmm. you know so the, uh, at the at the very least the awards to me seem to give some kind of signifier if you like uh of, of what might be ca- ca- yeah. what might be canonical mm-hmm. yeah
1: I don't know. I, uh, 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 the City and the City, this is a good, China's another good example of a writer who, as soon as you think you know what he's doing, you find out you don't. Um, yeah. Because by the time I got to the Iron Council, I thought I knew what China would be able to do. Sure. Um, and then I looked at the short fiction, and then I looked at Unlondon, and then I looked at The City and the City, and then I looked at Kraken.
2: Yeah. And
1: I found that no, he's doing a different thing. Um, would The City and the City, this is, here's an interesting question, would The City and the City, which I think is a very good novel, be getting the... Ex- the, 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 almost uh, excessive attention it's getting, if we'd known that Kraken was coming along. No. Which is equally a good novel, and which is completely different.
0: I don't think it would have. I mean, uh, I, I, I have this feeling that, in fact, I think if they'd been published in the, in the reverse order, if Kraken mm-hmm. had somehow come out in 2009 and City in the City was coming out this year, I think Kraken would be sweeping all the awards, and mm-hmm. I think that people would look at The City in the City as an oddity. Um, is my impression. Because, I mean, Kraken is such a synopsis of, every, of everything that he's done before. I mean, the one That's example yeah. I think of, which is maybe not a fair comparison, I always think of Antarctica, you know, the Stan Robinson novel, mm-hmm. as being, I finished my Mars series and now here's the entire conceptual work of, of that four books set, you know, mm-hmm. boiled down to one ser- one story. And you can now get mm-hmm. the whole like, everything idea in that. Now, I look at you know, Kraken, which I think is by far and away actually his best novel, for all sorts of reasons. And it combines all the essence of the weirdness of the Baslag novels. It has that fascination with cities, and with London, with uh, strange magic that you take out of Uh, Unlondon. Very much. you know. So it's almost like you've taken Baslag and strained it through Mm -hmm. um, Unlondon to produce this other book. Um, and I, I still think actually that Kraken will be on all the awards ballots next year. I'll be shocked if it's not at least a Hugo and a World Fantasy nominee. That would be my, you know, my feeling. Well, it's uh,
1: interesting that this year is seeing a couple of novels, which are the novels we expected to see from these people because Connie Willis is too mm, long. Yeah. This is a novel. Is this the novel that you expected to see from Connie Willis? way back 20-some years ago yes, when you read
0: absolutely. Firewatch, and yes, it
1: is. It's exactly yes. that novel. Absolutely, uh, Kraken is that novel. The City in the City is not that novel. The City in the City is, is a, no. something of a sport. As, as, technically, it's brilliant. I mean, it's, it's, it's an experiment with point of view. It's, it's sustaining kind of just as a puzzle for a writer. Yeah. It's astonishing he can bring that off. But well, it's not the culmination of all of China Abel's work in the way that Kraken is.
0: No, it's it's actually oddly reminiscent, and I might be wrong. I'd have to reread it of his novel uh, of his novella *The Tain*, which he did quite some years back. Mm-hmm. Quite strongly reminiscent of that, but also, I mean, I seem to recall comments somewhere that it was it was uh, an unexpected book that he'd been working on *Kraken*, and then things happened in his private life, and he produced this book out of sequence, and then went back and finished *Kraken*. Uh, and it's a short, tight book. You can see why it would be an unexpected book from him, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, it, I mean, it, it's funny because I, I had the same feeling with, with uh, China. I mean, I'd, I'd been swept away by *Pretty Street Station. Uh, I loved The Scar. I know some people who didn't, but I thought it was just marvelous. And I was put off reading uh, the third book at all. Iron Council. I'll never forget sitting on the back deck at Locus and Charles telling me that the central you know, idea in front of Iron Council is so ridiculous you can't even read it. Uh, not, mm-hmm. the, not not getting past the fact that he actually had read it and enjoyed it I think. But I, I struggled enormously. I thought well okay I, I don't want to read this book particularly and I sort of read London and then thought I should go, which I enjoyed, mm-hmm. but, but my, my problem with that was I don't know that I was necessarily convinced that he'd got down the whole young girl you know, viewpoint. Know, for his viewpoint character in the book right. uh but with this book he, it all comes together perfectly it, it's all it, it also reminds me of uh, neil gaiman's never a little bit though it's that sort of you know a much more complex and deep and interesting book than that was because i mean for, for neil that was a very early book but it, mm-hmm. but, but it's it, it's just it would i can't believe it won't be one of the top five books of the year i mean you know, you say was this the one the book that we expected from him that we'd not gotten yes it that that uh all-clear slash blackout it was a Connie Willis book. In some way, so was Under Heaven, the Guy K book.
1: That's exactly. It's, 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 because uh, Isabel, it's, it's a good example. Isabel was something of a sport for, for Guy mm-hmm. K. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in the same way. It was a v- very contemporary novel, an absolute love letter to Provence, and it's actually, it actually remains my favorite. As much as I like Under Heaven, it remains my favorite Guy K novel. Okay. But it's, Under Heaven was a realization of the kind of historical fantasy mix that Guy had b- been famous for, and probably has done it better in this novel than in the others yes, I've read. But yeah. it's not like Isabel is not even trying to do that
0: no no it's a completely different thing um, so and I also I mean I have to say that I'm sitting here and I'm there are, there are several books that I'm desperately waiting to get a hold of I mean I've just started reading as I mentioned to you before the Paolo Bacigalupi book uh, ship mm-hmm. ship uh, breaker but I'm also trying to get a hold of the new um, Bill Gibson novel which will be out in a couple of months and which is the third in the pattern recognition set mm-hmm. and can look you – know, actually, it's odd that he writes trilogies, but that's something I can't wait to get a hold of.
1: Um, and I'm curious about Bill Gibson because I wonder if uh, – Bill Gibson is one of these rare writers, and Joel Haldeman another one who uh, began with an absolute canonical classic, and you, and, and you don't want them to do it again, uh, but obviously – uh, there are a lot of people who do want them to do it over and over. You wonder, how can, how can they reinvent themselves in that way? Um, and uh, Joe, who I think, is uh, getting the Grand Master Award at the Nebulas,
0: isn't he? I think he
1: might be, yes. That sounds about right. Okay. I think he had an email about effect, uh, And absolutely deserves it. And he's been reinventing himself uh, sometimes, sometimes not. Uh, as, as somebody who writes a lot about the arts rather than about military science fiction, because people think of him as a military SF writer, and in many ways he's the farthest thing from a military <laughs> SF writer in True. the way that
0: subgenre has been defined. Well, I guess that that kind of actually takes us somewhere else completely that I'd meant to talk to you about anyway. When I first thought about talking to you on this podcast, uh, how have you come to become an editor? Because it sort as of happened. Me- yeah. Well. Okay. You've always been a critic and reviewer, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've done editorial work anyway, but I, I wasn't that aware of it. But the reason I say it that way is, I mean, you've, you've got a Philip Jose Farmer ad, 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 you know, collection that you've edited. for so, coming up That's coming time, out later yeah. this year. You and I are going to co-edit um, The Best of Joe Haldeman that's for good. Subterranean. We've got to sit down and do that shortly. Uh, and also, I know you've had other sort of secret projects in the background. What's got you to it?
1: Um, there were a couple of things. Phil Farmer was a very good friend of mine and I uh, was talking with Chris Watts, his agent, and and, 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 and uh, with Subterranean, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, I was asked to do that because I, I, I knew his work fairly well and they'd already done the best of Philip Jose Farmer, which were all the classic books. Basically, what Bill Schaefer said was find some more stories <laughs> uh, that we haven't reprinted recently. And that yep. was a challenge and I, I, I felt I could do it and I felt like I, I owed it to Phil who had just uh, yeah. died a few months before I was asked yep. to do that. Uh, the Joe Haldeman thing, you asked me to help, because yep. well, I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I've done a lot of work about Joe. The other project is one I got recommended also. So all this has been accidental. Yep. Um, many years ago, I was actually invited to do the, what became the Science Fiction Research Association anthology that was edited by Dave Harkwell and Mild Wolf. And mm-hmm. At that time, I was a dean in my college, mm-hmm. and I realized the kind of reading that you need to do uh, for that kind of thing, I just literally didn't have time. I mean, I was, yeah, I was yeah. working 60, 70 hours a week, and um, part of what has opened up the possibility of doing more projects is when I stopped being a department chairman and a dean only a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, so, so I've got a lot of things going on, and uh, part of it is uh, the, just I say, circumstance. Like Phil died, and uh, yeah, yeah, uh, various other things happened. I don't have any ambition whatsoever to do what you do, because I'm astonished at, uh, uh, at your ability to read things from major writers, and I'm, I'm thinking of one story, which I know you read, which has subsequently been published, mm. um, that, uh, that, takes a, that takes a huge amount of self-confidence, it seems to me, in your ability to choose a story. You get a story from, from a, a, a legendary name in the field, and you realize it's not very good. Uh, how do you say no to that?
0: I've got to say, it's not easy. Uh, it's happened to me a few times. It started happening early on when I was working in uh, worked for Eidolon. In fact, many, many years ago, uh, mm-hmm. I, I did this semi-prosy in here in Australia, and I was in touch with Grania Davis, and she offered me some unpublished Avram Davidson stories to publish. And I also mm-hmm. was offered some unpublished R.A. Lafferty around the same time, because I was trying to get the magazine to fo- you know, expand its horizons beyond simply Australian mm-hmm. fiction at the time. And, one of the one of the Davidson pieces was okay, but all the rest of it was stuff that belonged in, you know, uh, in in the bottom drawer where it was being pulled from. And it took a lot to sit there and kind of go, okay. And I thought, well, at least these, and this is terrible, but at least the guys are dead. They're not going to be offended when they find out that I've uh, rejected their stories. But when I moved on to doing the stuff I'm doing now, I mean, I, I have to admit, sometimes, and, and, and you know this for very, that, I find myself second guessing myself. I mean, usually, if you're really honest, you know when a story is good. You read it once. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, the story I always think of when I tell, uh, say that is uh, the story that Ian MacDonald wrote for me for The Starry Rift, uh, The Dust Assassin. Mm-hmm. And he emailed that to me for the book, and I read it. In, like, literally, I opened the email. I read the story on screen, and I went, I love that story. I have to buy it. And then I thought, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going to be a, you know, grown up. I'm not going to be impulsive. Mm-hmm. I will wait till tomorrow. I'll read it a second time. And then I went, you're mad. And I just... Bought it because I, I felt yeah. intrins really strongly. When I felt really sort of sickeningly, you know, doubtful, I have called on other people as well because one thing I'm aware of is, as an editor, other people like stuff you don't, and some, sometimes you pick up work that you don't admire. That you, 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 sometimes you detect stuff that's that's not good, and sometimes it's just not to your ear, right? Mm-hmm. So for the story you're talking about. Which we shan't name for awfully good reasons. I mean, mm-hmm. I asked your opinion, I asked Charles's opinion, I asked somebody else, because I was, I was waiting for somebody or anybody to go, you know, you really, you really have a tin ear, you're wrong. And in that case, nobody did. So you kind of have to sort of suck it up and go, look, I love your work, I love you, I mm-hmm. really, but this one just, just, just isn't gonna fly. And it was hard. And I think um, that impacted in that case with, with me ever working with that writer again, actually. I think I think there was a little bit of a feeling of that they knew they were a legend in the field mm-hmm. and they felt that perhaps maybe they should get a pass. But I don't think you can get to be a professional editor if you're going to give everybody a pass just because they're you – know, I'd like to think that if Gene Wolfe wrote a bad story and it mm-hmm. got, got past his critical filter, and I'm not saying it would happen, but let's say it did, and I went, actually, that's not any good for this reason, that, if, that he would at least look at it and go, you know, either I think you're mad and I'm going somewhere else, or he'd go, uh, okay, fair enough, I can see your point. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel, I, feel you know, I, I, think that someone like Gene Wolfe or someone like Neil Gaiman or somebody like Stephen King or somebody like Jeff Ford, that none of them want to get published just because they're, you know, Neil Gaiman, Stephen King, Jeff Ford, or whoever else. I think that's true, yeah. You know, I think it's I Neil said- Gaiman's great fear, in fact. As well, right think
1: I, I think that's true, and I've uh, I, I've been sent things by Neil and by other writers to, to look at for that reason, and, and to see if and and, and it, it's just as a test case. I mean, I'm not the only reader. I'm, there are several people. I can mention that about Neil because it's in one of his books. But mm. uh, but the the thing that that strikes me as as being courageous on your part is uh, or, or on any editor's part is most of the time you simply have to make the decision yourself. And my great fear as a reviewer is um, but not any not not as much as it was when I started. But at the, at the very beginning, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to write this mixed review of a book, and maybe I just missed the point entirely. And I was so uh, I can tell you an anecdote about that, which sure. uh, Peter wouldn't mind telling. You. Uh, the I i become friends with Peter Straub before I reviewed his first book, which was uh, not long after we got yep. to know each other. It was Mr. X, as a matter of fact. Yep. And it was a good review, and I thought that he was doing interesting things with Lovecraft in it and interesting things with, with non-white points of view and all sorts yep. of things. Um, and he sent me an email, um, this is more than ten years ago, uh, saying, I appreciate your review, it's too bad you overlooked the fact that if you take the first word, the first letter of every word in the first chapter, you spell it the opening sentence of the, the, the Ponds of Null A or something, Ben votes for it. <laughs> And I thought, oh, my God. I, I went to my wife at the point and said, I've completely missed everything in the book. And she said, he's pulling your leg. It adds up to anything at all. And of course it did. And of course he was. But that's how paranoid I was that I could just miss something entirely. She, she, well, and I did. I've done this. I've, I missed uh, – I reviewed one of uh, Orson Card's novels, which was the Book of Mormon.
2: Yeah, yeah. He'd
1: done the first part of the Book of Mormon. He did the whole Book of Mormon as a series. And the first volume, I just missed it. The second volume, I thought, oh, my God. How did yeah. I miss that?
0: Well, part of it's got to be you're, you know you're reviewing, five you know, between four and six books a month for us, you know so I'm reading more than the, yeah yeah so so you're you're reading a lot and it goes past quickly, um, you know and and so it's easy at times to overlook. I mean I look back to when I started reviewing for Locus, and I think what I had on my side was na- naivety. I didn't know anybody in the international field really at all, and so I could just take a book home and read it and just sort of write, okay, I'll write my um, my, my review of it, and I could be very ideologically pure because, you know, I could say, oh, well, I'm not compromising to anybody. This is my opinion. Um, of course, the truth is that, you know, in 1997, my opinion wasn't that well-informed anyway, and it was all very you know, simplistic and naive. And when I'd been in the field, another, you know, I stopped reviewing in 2002, but I, I don't mm-hmm. think I could even try now. I mean, I, I know people everywhere. And also, I've read a great deal. So I, you know, I find it takes a long time to write reviews because you've, there's so much more you're filtering your reading through of a book. You know, it's not just simply a, a a clean read of the one book, it's this book and its context in the field, and the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, well, let's say you read a. Book by a friend. Jack Dan is a friend of mine. Let's say I read mm-hmm. a Jack Dan book, and I, I was committed to reviewing it, and I hated it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You, know, you have to find a way to, to write that review that's not going to damage your friendship, and, and then
1: at the same time be an honest review.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you know somebody might say, well, you know, look, this, you know, the answer is you don't review uh, review books by friends, and you'd say, well, okay, that sounds reasonable, but if you live inside the science fiction community. It's not possible.
1: This now, is a point that John Clute made years ago yeah, in that yeah. it's, it's what he called the doctrine of excessive candor. There's yeah. a point at which you have to uh, – your friends have to understand. There, there were two things that went into that. One is mm. the issue of spoilers, which Clute is not interested in at all. Yeah. Uh, if, if I have to talk about this, to talk about it. And the other one is if you – and Clute knows more people probably than you and I combined. Yeah. You yeah. can't review anything without it being by a friend of his. And, yeah. and, and, yeah. and we, you eventually get to the point where, yeah, you have to do this. There are times when I'll be reading a novel, and I read a novel by a major writer this year, and for the first 30 or maybe 50 or maybe 60 pages of it, I thought, oh, my God, this isn't going to work. What am I going to do now? This is somebody I yeah. admire and respect and is a good friend. And it got better and better and better, and then it got brilliant. And then it got yeah. terrific. I thought, thank God. I mean, it was a huge. But yeah. there, was, there, there was a sense at the beginning like, okay, what am I going to do now?
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, the thing I had recently we did, we ran a review of um, the Sorcerer's House, the Gene Wolfe novel, and it was, it was uh, Paul Whitgover reviewed it. Wrote a very intelligent review, but quite a negative review, and mm. it was put to me quietly somewhere that you know maybe this was not the right thing to do writing such a critical review of Gene Wolfe, and I looked and I thought you know what we've got a surely the relationship we have with with him or with any writer as long as it's not as long as you're reviewing the book and not the you know the the writer surely the relationship should be strong enough and robust enough to survive that you know as long as as long as not you know scoring cheap sort of points as a writer i mean the worst thing a reviewer can do i think is write things that make them look funny because generally they're, they're scoring cheap points on the author when they do that
1: well, that's very easy to do. I mean, that's one of the things we've talked about before. Yeah, yeah. Writing a killer review is, is easy and fun, and you can do it. You don't even have to finish the book. Um, and it's a cheap shot. And it yeah. doesn't say anything useful about the book. I mean, I mean by and large, and, uh, you know, if a book isn't worth reviewing, it's probably not worth finishing. And if I don't finish it, I won't review it. But, yeah. uh, but you do try to find things that are uh, uh, interesting. And uh, even, even books that are not entirely successful, can yeah. have very interesting things to say about the field, and can be very interesting in terms of the author's work, and can have virtues that you don't see. If, if you miss something, if you, if you actually make a mistake, uh, you will hear about it. Oh, yeah. uh, you hear about that a lot. If, if if you get something right, you more rarely will hear about it. The, yeah. the, the, some of the reviews. I mean, one of the reviews I'm most proud of, uh, which I talked about, is uh, I was doing years ago a book called Bending the Landscape, which is a mm. Uh, anthology of, uh, of gay and lesbian science fiction of Nicola Griffith, and I forget who else.
0: Steve what Pagel, is. I think.
1: Uh, yeah, right, exactly. And I, I didn't know most of the writers in it. Uh, they were brand new writers to me, and one of them was a writer I'd never heard of, named Ellen Klages.
2: <laughs> and, at the yep. end,
1: and, and she'd written a story called Time Gypsy, and, I, and in the review, not knowing any of these people, I said, the best story here is by somebody I've never heard of, and i looked look up her biographical stuff. nothing there, she'd written some children's things for the yeah, yeah. museum in san francisco and uh later i found out that yeah i was right <laughs> that, was, that was the most important new writer in that book
0: absolutely and it turns
1: out that she read the review and told me years later that that made a huge difference to her that makes it worthwhile actually
0: um, I, I have to tell you how disproportionately i've come to love her work like I, I did a major resort you might remember me telling you of my book collection Because, Mm -hmm. you know, know, got got married a while back, never put our books together, had to cull out 40 cartons of books or whatever. And I'd had books completely disorganized in my office, and my copy of Portable Childhoods went missing. Oh. And I, 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 honest, I swear to you, I panicked. I'm going, I must have it. Am I going to have to go back on, you know, like back online and buy another one? I can't not have a copy of this book. And then I was thinking, did, did Ellen sign it to me? Is it personalized? Mm-hmm. You know, and I, was, I was actually really sort of thrown by it because I really, really do admire her work. I mean, as you'd know, if you follow my anthologies, which you do, I tend Obviously. to collect her, book, her work quite often. Um, and so, yes, in fact, now that I think about it, we must almost be, be ready for another collection from her.
1: I would think so because she's she's also somebody uh, and we talked about this a little bit uh, last time. Uh, you know, like Ted Chang and Mary Rick. Yeah, yeah. who Writes short fiction. She, she writes the young adult novels, which are very good. But her short fiction mm-hmm. is something that, uh, especially since I followed her literally from her first story in that in that collection, yeah. you always wonder if she's going to be able to follow up with this. And yeah. actually, she got more sophisticated than what she was doing because that first story was very it was a very good story, but the science fiction elements in it were literally off the shelf elements, and she yeah. knows that. Uh, but yeah, she got more complicated. She got more passionate as a writer. And yet she didn't write a lot. I mean, there, there are a number of writers like that. I remember I would have had the same feeling if, um, uh, if, if, the, if I lost my copy of the Eileen Gunn collection, uh, Stable Strategies, Yeah. Uh, because there's so few of those stories and yeah. everyone is, a, is like a gem.
0: They are. They absolutely are, and she's she's got a good handful of stories now, so I, I hope we'll see something soon. But I mean, the problem with, with somebody like her and with um, Eileen Gunn, who's also written for me in the past, mm. is that uh, you hope that publishers will keep supporting them too. I mean, uh, it's easy for them, unfortunately, commercially, to, you know, for, for short story collections to fall into the gaps and not maybe get published all the time. You know, not, mm. not many people can be a Margot Lanigan who, who build a career on a short story collection. You know, usually they're the things that sort of disappear altogether, so I hope it'll happen.
1: Um, well, this is one of the things that uh, we've talked for years about how the small presses have, to some extent, saved that whole mm. market for short fiction and, mm. and can actually make money, uh, including the Peter Beagle collections that Tachyon has done uh, yeah. and, and the best of Peter Beagle that, that Subterranean has done. Um, these are writers who probably, uh, you know, if, uh, if 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 the world were in completely in the hands of Bertelsmann and Hachette, would not have books published at all. Yeah. Um, so so to some extent, and the, to to some extent, it's not as though the short story market has shrunk to that extent. No. Uh, I don't think short story collections ever sold that much. No. Uh, you know, unless you were a Harlan Ellison or a Ray Bradbury, obviously. I, th- I, think, uh,
0: I think I think other things have changed in the background. I think the philosophy for publishers who who, who deal with short story collections have changed. The tolerance for them at a major commercial level, you know, the kind of pressures, I think, that whole thing that happened in the 80s where uh, book publishers got you know, bought up by major media companies and were seen as being content sources rather than anything else, and then the kind of profitability that was started to be demanded of them really made it difficult for them to continue to support, support books that were worthy but commercially marginal,
1: mm-hmm. you know? And it's, it becomes more complicated when you're dealing with, with fairly complex, sophisticated writers, um, fairly literary writers, let's say, like Eileen Gunn and Jimmy. And Ellen's book, for example, in Portable Childhood, as I recall, nearly half the stories are not really even fantasy or science fiction.
0: No, no. Uh, there's a
1: lot not. of but, but, but there's that ambience. And we've talked about this. This is something that fascinates me also, is what I think of as non-fantasy, fantasy, or non-science fiction, science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a fantasy. Ambience to them. There's, there's yeah. something in. I, I once said this to Ellen that she, she may not always write science fiction, but she writes the kind of stuff that science fiction readers like to read. Yes. Yeah. And I've talked to any number of fans who have who admire her work or or Aline's work or, or, or some of uh, some of Kelly Link's work, and don't even notice that there's nothing fantastic that actually happens in yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. It has that sensibility, which is very difficult to define. Uh, it is. And, it's,
0: and, and certainly as an as an editor, I've sometimes sat there and gone. I hereby choose to decide that that's genre fiction and move along. I mean, that, that's what well, happened with you... uh, the, the Pelican Bar.
1: The Karen, Fowler the story. Karen Joy Fowler story. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've, I'm sure you've talked to people, I've talked to people who say that's not a science fiction story.
0: It was, was in a science uh, fiction anthology, of course, a science fiction story.
1: Well, that's all you need. And that goes back to our question of canon formation. Yes. Uh, is, uh, you know, is, is Karen Joy Fowler a major science fiction writer? Well, um,. I don't know. I mean, she's written major science fiction books. *Sarah Canary* was a problem. There were yeah. people who read that simply as a frontier narrative when it yeah. came out. Yeah. Um, and, and and a good chunk of her writing has nothing to do with the field at all. It's uh, it, 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 it's not reviewable. Uh, John Crowley is a good example. There's a sense I, I I actually reviewed Four Freedoms* for *Locus*, and it's and you could. You could stretch your imagination and say, well, there's enough of an alternate history of aviation in that novel to say, well, it's <laughs> slightly fantastic, but yeah. it's not. No, it's not. No. It's, it's a mainstream historical novel. Yeah. But it has the sensibility of a fantasy novel about it, and that's something I've never been able to define, and I, don't, I haven't seen
0: anybody. No, no. Hey, here's a question. I mean, seriously, is Under Heaven a fantasy novel, the Guy Cade book?
1: That's another interesting question. Or a more interesting way of putting that is, does it need the fantastic elements in it? For the narrative to work, and in my sense, it for the plot to happen, no, it doesn't really need. We we shouldn't give it. It has ghosts in it. It has
2: whatever.
1: Could the novel happen without those events? Absolutely, it could happen without those events. Yeah, but it wouldn't have the same sensibility uh, that it does. Now, here's here's another interesting question because one of the books I have now, and I hope to be able to finish. Uh, soon as, as, as the new Cecilia Holland novel came of oh, yeah. the north, okay. yep. which is wonderful, and there are clearly supernatural things happening in that novel um, from within the point of view of uh, of, of these you know, medieval characters. Uh, which does that make it a fantasy, or does that make it a, a historical novel, which you know, is in the viewpoint? Uh, in other words, I, does,
2: I the, fantasy
1: keep, does, does yeah. the fantasy keep does the fantasy keep Cecilia novel, a Cecilia Holland novel, from becoming an historical novel, or does the history keep a Guy K novel from being a fantasy
0: novel. Um, and, and also, and I, I know this is some of the motivation for why Guy does what he does, was the worldview of the people who existed at that time, sort of, was it sufficiently fantastical to our perspective that you're actually presenting a realistic view of their world with something that we would judge to be fantastical? I mean, I think about, I don't know if you ever saw the, the HBO series Rome. Mm-hmm. But it opens with this sort of thing where you see sort of uh, moving uh, fantastical figures in, in the friezes on the walls and stuff. You really, I mean, people a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, maybe had an intrinsically fantastical view of the world. And so for Cecilia to include that in the book, which I've obviously not read, maybe what she's doing is giving a realistic sense of their worldview.
1: I think it is, and I think it's exactly what Gene Wolfe was doing in the Soldier of Sidon novels or the Soldier yeah. of the Myth novels. Uh, except he was very clever, and Gene has always been a, a, a genius at manipulating point of view. We're clearly within a point of view of somebody who believes that what he's narrating is happening. But in yeah. any Gene Jean- Wolf novel, you have no idea whether <laughs> the narrator is, is, is somebody you can trust or not. So you have to uh, trust him within that context. Yeah. Um, and the, the, but the, the, there are the, there are any number. There, there are a couple of fantasy classics. I mean, uh, you, you look at the, the Mervyn Peak. Yeah. Uh, you look at the Titus Grown series and try to pinpoint the moment in that series when something fantastic or supernatural happens, and you can't do it. Yeah. It's extremely unlikely, it's grotesque, it's baroque, it has all the ambience of fantasy in it. But you can't say the classical definition of fantasy is that something impossible has to happen. You can't say something impossible really happens in that book. No. Um, in any of those books. No. And, in fact, it, by the third volume, which you didn't finish, it actually becomes kind of a... It turns The third volume almost turns into the last episode of the Prisoner TV series, you've got <laughs> You know motorways and things going on outside. Um, so uh, that's that's always an interesting question. And the thing that interests me is that, uh, again, in terms of uh, what we think of the canon, if you come up with a rigid definition of what constitutes fantasy or science fiction, you're going to exclude things that feel a lot like fantasy yeah, and
0: science, yeah. fiction, but may not be. Well, I think there are I'll... a couple of. The other thing, and I think Hartwell would disagree with this, uh, particularly you know, David Hartwell, and I think to some degree Charles would have disagreed with it to a point. I don't know that we necessarily need to have uh, rigid walls around the canon or around the field. I mean, it, it's innately porous anyway. I think we should allow it to be porous because it makes it richer.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, there there are Bill Gibson novels that are not quite science fiction. Yes, there are. Uh, and, and some of these very cutting-edge um, writers that uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of, people who know a lot more. Ted Chang is one of the people who know a lot more about what, what's going on than I do. Um, there's there's science fictional elements in Greg Bear's thrillers, Quantico and the sequel to Quantico. Yep. And Bear knows a lot more than I do about what's going on in technology. I don't know, really know whether this is science fiction or not. It's science fiction, you know, uh, three or four years from now maybe. Yeah. Um, Bruce Sterling wrote, uh, what was the novel, the millennial
0: novel he wrote uh, about oh. the rock band? Oh, um, yes, I know what you mean. Uh, and it was... Zeitgeist? Uh,
1: Zeitgeist. Yeah. And it was a science fiction novel set a year before it was published, and it was clearly a science fiction novel, and yet <laughs> nothing in it was really in the future at all.
0: <laughs> Didn't that happen to a Liz Hand novel as well? Wasn't the one where she had it was like it was set in 1999 or something, uh, and it came out the year after. It was something like that, I think. Maybe it was I one.
1: I think a millennial novel. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, I'm, so, I'm blanking on the title of that as well, but but but, but there is a sense that uh, the writers today don't feel that they necessarily yeah. have to be limited to that. It, Twenty years ago, there was a very good writer. I thought one of the best writers of science fiction, meaning fiction about scientists and how they work. Uh, next to Greg Benford back in the 70s and 80s was a guy named Paul Proce. I, don't I know
0: remember name, him, yeah. He wrote a and fantastic he, book. Yeah, he,
1: he wrote a couple of really fantastic novels. He's still around. He actually was at the Charles Memorial last year. And uh, Essentially, what he was doing then was something you can't do. You either write mainstream novels about science, or you write yep. science fiction novels, but you can't do both. Today, I think, if he started off, nobody would be uh, bothered much by that. Richard yeah. Powers' uh, last couple of novels have been Mainstream novels that, Mm. you know, technically were science fiction novels. Nobody, Very few people in the science fiction field even read them, and almost nobody in the mainstream press read them as science fiction.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, But by any technical definition, they were. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, believe it or not, having recorded an hour and 10 minute long podcast and then having lost it, we just recorded another hour long podcast, Gary.
1: (laughs) We did. It seems like 20 minutes. We haven't gotten started yet. We haven't done our canon
0: part Oh, we can do the the, the, the cannon can remain, uh, 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 you know, sort of unexploded. We can come back to it next next week or something, because of course, I, you know, okay. with a little bit of luck, like, that's what we'll do. Obviously, we're not kind of any problem generating content. I just hope people continue okay. to find it interesting.
1: Well, let's hope they do too. And uh, thanks for calling. I'm okay. glad you did this over again.
0: Me too. All right. Take good care.
1: I'll talk Bye. To you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.